0: Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arthroscopy Association or Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome everyone. I am Jamie Lynch from True Ortho in San Antonio. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Alan Hirahara. He's a medical director and head team physician for California State University Sacramento Athletics Department. In addition, he is faculty for Sports Medicine Fellowship at UC Davis in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Dr. Hirohara has a private practice in Sacramento and also works as a head team physician for the Sacramento River Cats. This is a AAA affiliate for the San Francisco Giants. Amazingly, he also finds time to regularly present and teach his craft around the world. Dr. Hirohara is the author of the paper entitled, Ultrasound Assessment of the Superior Capsule Reconstruction with Thermal Allograft, an Evaluation of Graft Thickness and Vascularity. This was published in December of 2019 in the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Wyatt Anderson, ATC, and Dr. Alberto Pinero. Welcome, Dr. Harahara. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Jamie, for having me.
0: So obviously, there's quite a bit of excitement around the supercapsular reconstruction at this time. You have clearly demonstrated a very good healing with this intervention, and we know that you're actually evaluating the shoulder with the ultrasound to determine if the graft is healed and not just assuming that the patient with a good outcome is actually healed. I certainly want to delve into the meat of your study and also want to address some of the tips and pearls that you can guide us in pursuing management of this particularly difficult problem of the massive irreparable rotator cuff tear. I want to begin with the study. Can you explain to listeners why you think the graft measurement is thicker laterally than it was at the mid-substance or than the original graft.
1: Yeah, so that's, that was an interesting finding. And, and I will tell you flat out that uh, this was somewhat serendipitous finding. I've been interested in ultrasound since 2009. And, you know, we've traditionally looked at whether or not things have been repaired uh, well or if they've retorn with cuff. So we routinely kind of take a look at these things, but we didn't actually go into this thinking that we'd be looking at thickness. We, this is something that we just happened to notice as we were checking some of our patients out. And as we started taking down numbers and tracking them, we were kind of blown away. And what we think is going on, based off uh, a couple different things, and we presented information from Evan Letterman about some of the histology from explants, as well as Julie Bishop uh, and her pictures of post-op images of what it looks like arthroscopically. What we think is going on is that there's revascularization. And that's corroborated by the vascularity that we see on the pulsatile vessels found using the uh, color Doppler of the ultrasound technology. What we're seeing is that we get pulsatile vessels laterally at the point of insertion at the tuberosity. And what we notice is that that's always just above the bone. It's never towards that mid-substance area. And remember, this is dermal tissue, so there are natural vascular channels already built into the tissue. And I think what's going on is that the body is taking over the tissue, vascularizing through those vessels, taking them over, and that's allowing for the swelling, allowing for that hypertrophy at that attachment point. And since we're having so much more vascularity laterally, that's why it's thickening there, but not in the mid The big question is going to be, as we have longer-term follow-up and outcomes, will it thicken eventually? I don't know. That's just something we we'll have to look for. And this was also interesting in the paper is that we found that when we saw pulse vessels, there was an absolute significant difference in thickness of that lateral aspect between the groups that had pulse vessels and those that did not in the first year. Now, beyond first year, it kind of normalized, and they all became about the same on average, no significant differences. But it was very interesting that it did correlate with vascularity.
0: And so you think that's occurring at the beginning of the healing, because towards the end, there's only one graph that actually indicated some vascularity at the lateral side.
1: And That's very interesting, actually, is that, you know, in the first four months, we never saw any pulsatile vessels appear. But about the four-month mark is when we start seeing those pulsatile vessels coming into play. They usually go away about eight months. Again, which correlates with the fact that in our normal tendon, there are no pulsatile vessels. Ligament and tendon we have peri vessels, but never intrasubstance vessels. And as we also know from the histology, we are seeing capillaries forming inside of that tissue, which is normal. So that's why I say I think this is extremely interesting and teaches us a lot about what's going on and why this is working.
0: And then continue to see any thickening of the more mid-substance, and clearly we're limited to certainly more medially after that. You discussed the use of ultrasound, which you've clearly used for a while. You're using that for your rotator cuff repairs, your superior capsule reconstructions. And how have you standardized this after you've done either rotator cuff repair or capsule reconstruction? Are you evaluating those patients?
1: So that's what's changed a bit. So my normal practice, my clinical practice, and I'm not in a university setting for my clinical practice. I don't have residents. I do have occasional fellows. And so we don't have a standardized, okay, we do everything at this point, this point, this point. However, since we've learned what we learned from this, now we are standardizing. Now we are evaluating people on the ultrasound post spr at one week, six weeks, three months, six months, nine months, one year, and then one year beyond every year after that. In my normal practice, I'm clearly not doing that. Having people back as we came at like that, we would only do the ultrasound really When we felt there was an issue that we had to evaluate, you know, our repairs.
0: I see. It does make it more challenging. I mean, as a private practice surgeon myself, make sure that you have all the time to do the ultrasound. And it brings up another point because I've had the opportunity to use a variety of different uh, ultrasound machines, and I know that for this particular study, you had two different ultrasound scanners and different individuals using those scanners. Have you ever done any inter reliability, or are you there most of the time, or how are you? Balancing out these different ways to image the different people that are imaging?
1: So I started off doing them all myself and then eventually brought in fellows, assistants, my research assistant, my colleague, Dr. Panero, as well to do these ultrasounds. Uh, but ultimately, and the good news is, the patients are always brought in when I'm there. So I would always see the patient. And so I would look at the pictures that they were being done. If I didn't like them, I'd do them myself and mm-hmm. help teach the people there to make sure they were seeing the right things. If they were unsure, I would actually get in there and scan myself. The good news is it doesn't actually take very long to do it. I mean, yeah. really, it takes literally one to three minutes. It's mm-hmm. not hard. And so it's not a lot of time out of my, my practice for me, especially having assistants who can put in their data into the machine, set mm-hmm. them up, get them ready. So I just pretty much walk in. It takes them just a few minutes. If you were unsure about them, you can always go back and recheck them with those machines. It's wonderful.
0: From this study, your results did seem to fit the hypothesis. Was there anything else besides what you've discussed thus far that was either unexpected or anything else that you found or a takeaway that we should uh, pull from this study?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of them. There really is a bunch of stuff we learned and things that we can take away. Number one, ultrasound is not good medially. We can't see the glenoid, we can't see the attachment medially, so we can't see the whole thing. So is ultrasound the ultimate best test to evaluate your FDR? No, because actually I've seen some of the tears off the medial side, which we discovered through MRI. But this is definitely a good way to assess lateral, mid-substance, quick assessment. And so it's definitely something that is, I think, of great benefit to the patient. Um, So that's the first thing, that MRI is important. It's not something that you can get away from, but ultrasound has also got its own place as well. The second thing for me that I kind of took away from this is that it's amazing how we as doctors have this technology, but I don't think we're all using it to its effective ability. And I had to discover this on my own. No one told me about this.
0: Yes, I found that Yoshen is very helpful in my practice as well. Now that I've started really delving into
1: the research aspect, um, patients come back and do MRIs, so we've had more information, we've had better ways to assess it. But clinically, if you're a practitioner, I don't think doing serial routine MRIs afterwards is necessary.
0: Going on to the massive irreparable rotator cuff tear, I'd like to understand your algorithm, your approach to this particular problem. We've seen people talking about tendon transfers and we talk about bridging or the SCR or just a a partial repair. Obviously others that are going to reverse total shoulders. What's your algorithm for this patient with a massive irreparable tear?
1: Yeah, it's unfortunately quite a large one. I was putting together a, uh, a kind of a spreadsheet of like, if this, if this, if mm-hmm. this it turns out it's not as basic as we'd like it to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Everyone wants to hear just, yes, this, do this, this, do this. And unfortunately, in this case, I don't think that is really valid. Overall, I do not make a decision of what I will do ahead of time going into the surgery for the potential for repair or STR. I don't do replacement. And so therefore, if I'm going to have that patient go do a reverse, I'm going to send them out to someone who's a specialist in that. And I have clear reasons in my mind to send those people. So for example, let's start with that one since that's the easiest. A reverse for me is someone that has arthritis with a massive irreparable cuff tear or a large cuff tear that Mm -hmm. is needs to have something like that, Mm -hmm. where they'll go in and they'll decide they're going to do a reverse versus a total uh, and I'm not going to get into the whole concept of doing a total with an STR, which is what some people are doing now too. Um, I'll leave that one for you for another <laughs> discussion with another surgeon. One, um,
0: yes. <laughs> but,
1: but definitely, but definitely arthritic changes. And I think this is where, and I've been saying this from the beginning, don't do that. And, and, and the good news is Steve didn't listen to me. Steve Burkhardt didn't listen to me. He went and did a bunch with arthritis and found exactly what we'd expect. They don't do well. Mm-hmm. So. At this point, if you've got a Hamada three, I'm sorry, consider sending them out. Now, if they're forty-something, maybe discuss with them and realize it may not be such a good outcome. But you talk it over with the patient. Uh So that's the first step: is arthritic changes. Now it comes into play: age slash bone quality. That that kind of goes together for me. I'm not an age hater, so if Uh someone's older and I've done it on someone who's in their 80s, I have it's okay. And so if someone comes in and they're just very gung-ho, active, good tissue, you know what? I'm not going to send them to reverse. I'll be more than happy to talk with them about potentially doing it. But on the other hand, I've had some patients come in where clearly on x ray their bone quality is horrible. I'm sorry. I- I'm worried about my attachment to my graft yeah. and my anchors. So maybe a reverse is better for you. And that's, I've sent them that direction.
0: Or- Have you had the patient get a DEXA scan beforehand? Or are you just assessing?
1: No, I'm, I'm assessing purely on x-ray because we all know as orthic surgeons that the Xs are good and it's great and it helps us quantify, but mm-hmm. on X ray, we can really see pretty well if it's bad, good, or even maybe adequate. What am I seeing? What's the general gestalt of the patient and kind of like what is best for them? What kind of a lifestyle do they have?
0: That's kind of mm-hmm. where I am for that. What about the atrophy of the musculature? We've seen it where we have that massive tear, there's some atrophy. Yeah. If you could, yeah. if you can mobilize that tear, right, yeah. and bring it over without too much tension, what is your push to do the SCR or, you know, yeah. repair over the top or what have you?
1: That is a fabulous question. That is absolutely the, the crux of where we're all going with it because before it used to be just irreparable cuff. That's all we talked about. I admit to you that now we don't talk about it that way. I now talk about it as a cuff tear that I think will not do well from a repair. That's Mm -hmm. kind of where I am now. That's the new discussion point for me. So now what I'm looking at is, you said it perfectly. If they've got really bad atrophy of their superspinatus, it was Ashish Betty that wrote that paper that looked at that line, if you take the line between the spine and the coracoid, mm-hmm. you can take a look to see if that muscle goes above that line or below as one of the indicators about repairability. And then, of course, there's several the more recent papers that have talked about repairability based off evaluation of infraspinatus wasting and muscle atrophy and fatty infiltration. Mm-hmm. I think this is a very important direction that we're going to go now, eventually, to help us decide the best thing to do. I was having a discussion with Bassam El-Hassan, and he had some very wonderful points about, you know, look, if you've got no infra and it's all, it's all just fatty infiltration, you've got no real basis to be able to generate any kind of work
0: mm-hmm. so
1: that maybe in those situations you are better off going to do uh, a lower trap transfer. That might mm-hmm. be better. I think that might be a way we might have to go in the future. I don't know the answer but it's a good discussion point. Will SCR be good enough for those patients? I mm-hmm. think this is something that's going to come in time that we'll have to figure out.
0: One of the other things I wanted to address is the fact that it seems like a lot of us have become believers with the data that's out there. And it might be nice to understand how you came up with the technique using the dermal allograph. How did you decide that SCR was something that you would want to take on?
1: Yeah, I, I will, I will grudgingly admit that in 2013, I had a dinner with Dr. Teru Mahata and he came to one of the labs I was teaching and I had a talk with him. I said, you know, hey, Teru, uh, I have to admit to you, I don't believe your paper. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. And we went to dinner and after two hours of discussion, I walked away going, oh my gosh, this might actually work. I had done bridging in the past and it had never worked for me. Um, I tried and my patients didn't do well at all. And so I was not a believer in bridging. And i would seen many of the patients done by other surgeons come to me with failures also with bridging. And I've even seen the graft adhere itself to the acromion using the graft jacket. Uh, You know, so mm-hmm. I, I was just not that direction. So then I thought, there's no way anyone's going to let me cut like a 10 to 12 centimeter incision on their hip and take out their fascia lata so I got to find something else. And that's when I made a few phone calls and found that this three millimeter dermal allograft basically was available and no one was using it. And it was strong. And when we went into the lab and tested it, we got 500 newtons of pullout strength. And that's when the, the bone blocks broke. That wasn't the graft breaking. And so I said, hey, you know, we have to make a decision here. Because at that point, Mahada was saying six to nine millimeter grafts is necessary, but that was fasciolata. Mm -hmm. And so when we tested fasciolata versus the thermal graft, the fasciolata was much weaker and would pull out much, much easier. And also because of the nature of the architecture of the fasciolata, it's not holding sutures nicely. Mm -hmm. So we had to make a decision because we thought about putting two of these. Uh, Doma grafts together, sewing together, making a six millimeter six millimeter graft. And in the end, we said, you know what? Let's trust that this is a stabilizer. Let's trust that's actually what it is. So let's see how it works. So we tried the three millimeter graft, and it worked. The patients did well; they did fabulous, and uh, started getting some really good outcomes. Um, we had failures, of course, in the early going on. It's uh, it's pretty clear that it's not the simplest technique to do, but it can be done. And when you get it all down. And you, and you understand that the concept is that you've got to get the tension just right. Then you're going to get a good outcome. So, one, if your tension's poor, meaning too much or too little, not going to work. It's going to pull out. It won't do its job. That's when you need a thicker graph because then, yes, we've learned from the balloon. We've learned from Teru's thicker, you know, fasciolata. Spacers do work. We know that. Spacers work. But three millimeters is not adequate. So, that's the point. If you're getting a bad outcome, think to yourself, well, one, did I use an adequate graft? Two, did I actually tension it? Three, if I didn't do a good job with those things, do I at least have to take enough tissue to make it act as a spacer? So there's a lot of different factors to this. And that's kind of how I came to the point of, okay, this concept does work, but it's got to be done right. Because if you don't do it right, it definitely won't work. And if you take a look at some of the research out there, like you look at the wood mass, you look at the Lee paper, that showed very bad outcomes. I mean, talking about 30 mm-hmm. to 60% failure, read the technique they used. They didn't talk a thing about how they tensioned it. They didn't talk about even what thickness their grafts were. They didn't even talk about, you know, the difference between fasciolata and dermal grafts. In one paper, they used both. So, you know, in, in one paper, they even talked about how the first, Five surgeries that a new surgeon would do had a 75% failure rate. Well, gosh, think about that. There, there's a, that tells you, it. we've got to be good on the technique. We've got to be good about how we do it. And so the details in this surgery really
0: matter. We have a recent systematic review from Tokish that talks about more than 18,000 performed worldwide by 2018, I and mean, clearly they're being done. And so that would be some of the concerns that you have with the utilization or maybe over-utilization of SCR, maybe that some of the surgeons that are doing it aren't doing them properly. From a tension perspective, where are you now placing the shoulder when you're okay. when you're putting your final tension in?
1: This is a fallacy that I'm, I'm having a problem with, is that it's not about where you put the arm. It's about how you determine the tension. So for example, let's all assume that we're going to take my original technique of measuring mm-hmm. the distance between the anchors, then pre-punched your graft so that the distances were set correctly and that the sutures would go through the graft at the proper spot so that the the holes would line up with where you put your anchors. Then the discussion of where we had the arm in space, since the tuberosity with movement of the arm changes position, changes the actual orientation Mm -hmm. and relationship of the anchors to each other from glenoid to tuberosity. Okay, now that's going to matter. If you're not measuring, if you're not determining distance, if you're doing it arbitrarily, well, then that all goes out the door
0: because who cares where you put the arm? At some point, you're going to have to get the graph the size that you want it, right? So, how do you right. determine that? So, ultimately,
1: internal external rotation neutral. In terms of flexion extension, neutral. I measure with the arm neutral abduction. So, what mm-hmm. it means to me is that if you have someone that has huge lat dorsi, well, their arm is going to be more abducted. If they have like no lat dorsi, they're going to be very adducted, closer to the, closer to the chest. Mm-hmm. And then I try to See how the relationship is inside. Does it look realistic? And if I think that that reduces the arm well, well, that's why I want to go ahead and fix it. Bottom line: over tensioning the shoulder will cause pain, limitation of motion, increased arthritic changes, increased joint reaction forces. So we have to be careful about how much tension you build into the system. That's kind of my concept. The good news is is also Because of Poisson's ratio, because of the fact that if you can stabilize yourself anterior and posteriorly, you will limit your excursion medial lateral. Placing those margin convergence anterior and posterior are equally as important in your success. That's why with Mahata's graft, it's not very elastic. So Mm -hmm. not putting in an anterior margin convergence is totally okay for lata, but it's not okay for dermal
0: allograft. I see. This has been extremely helpful just looking at the SCR in general and from the article. We know that we're seeing increased thickness laterally. We see the pulsatile vessels. We're seeing peeling. Any other takeaways?
1: There's a lot more to learn. The other takeaway is the graphs are all different. So you can't take dermal allograph data and necessarily apply it to fascial lot data. They are different.
0: I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us today and I'd like to let listeners know, again, this is an article by Dr. Harahara entitled Ultrasound Assessment of the Superior Capsular Reconstruction with Thermal Allograft, an Evaluation of the Graph Thickness and Vascularity. This was published in the Journal of Arthroscopy, December 2019 issue, or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Podcast. Thank you all for joining us today.